Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Jimmy Bagley. Yeah, he's an expert in kinesiology and exercise physiology. I'm going to talk to him about muscle fiber types. What? The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. How narcissistic are we? <laughs> what do you mean? A scale of 1 to 10. 12. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. How's it going, Patty Devers? It's going really well. Welcome to the Lab Report. Welcome, everyone. Yep. Happy to have you. We are. And this is a podcast, all mm-hmm. things functional medicine, specialty lab testing, and integrative therapeutics, if you're not familiar with the show. No, it's Genova Diagnostics podcast. We happen to work there. And if it's the first time you're hearing this, you should do a couple of things. Yeah. Subscribe, yeah. rate, yep. review, do that. comments. Uh-huh. You can also connect with our show. Yeah, you can email us because you're probably sitting there saying, you know what? What? I just got all this time to email people. <laughs> And I don't Do send enough emails. Do people actually say that? Podcast at gdx.net. Is there an idea. address that they could like write a letter? Hmm, if only. There's not one. Podcast at gdx.net. You can do that <laughs> instead. That would be fun. These poor people. Give us your feedback. I know. Submit a question for question of the day. Right. Because we'd love to hear the jingle. I, I mean, one of us does. Right. <laughs> That's Patty. Lies. I, I'm, it's a lie. I'm pretty agnostic uh, to it. But. Whatever. So, Patty, we should probably let the audience know that we are currently standing up. Yes, we are. Social distancing, uh-huh. for sure, but we're standing right. as an act of defiance against gravity. <laughs> and because we're talking about exercise physiology today, so we figured... Let's n- stand up. We, we should, gotta move. Yeah, we need to honor this yeah. aspect of movement <laughs> by not moving, but staying in place, but standing. At least it's it's an attempt. It's a step in the right direction. It's a start. Right. It's something. And... You probably would not, this would not be a listenable podcast if we were actually moving and recording at the same time. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to breathe. As judged by the fact that it <laughs> takes a lot out of us to get up the three flights of stairs to get to, to this get podcast, to the podcast room. podcast room, yeah. yeah. All that being said, and probably too much unnecessary sharing, but what are we talking about? Well, today we're going to call Dr. Jimmy Bagley, who is a PhD researcher at San Francisco State University. Oh, that's brilliant. Thanks, Oliver. It really is. Yeah. And... Here at Genova, we became aware of his work because, you know, he studies the gut. He's studying movement. He's doing a lot of really interesting research that seems to all really lead back to what we do here in functional medicine. And he's on the cutting edge of a lot of interesting research. Yeah, and gets us to the exercises medicine part yeah. of the functional medicine matrix. So, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I'm, I'm super excited to talk Me too. to him. So, um, Oliver, what do you think? Oh, well, I couldn't agree more. Awesome. Okay, now that we got your buy-in, let's go ahead and... Let's uh, call him. Let's call him. So, Patty. What? We have on our show today Dr. Jimmy Bagley. Oh, I know. I know, right? Psyched. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Bagley. Dr. Jimmy Bagley is an assistant professor of kinesiology and director of Muscle Physiology Lab, co-director of the Exercise Physiology Lab, and research director of the Strength and Conditioning Lab at San Francisco State University. Additionally, he is a visiting scholar in the Biochemistry and Molecular Exercise Physiology Lab at Cal State University Fullerton. 
Dr. Bagley teaches exercise physiology courses, and his research interests include muscle physiology, the effects of exercise on the gut microbiome, and human performance enhancement. Dr. Bagley earned a PhD in human bioenergetics from Ball State University in Indiana, MS in kinesiology from Cal State University Fullerton, and BS in kinesiology from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Dr. Bagley has published over 20 peer-reviewed scientific articles and book chapters and is an active member of the American College of Sports Medicine, American Physiological Society, and National Strength and Conditioning Association. And with that... Welcome to the lab report, welcome, Dr. Bagley. Dr. Bagley. Thank you, and thanks for having me on. Thanks for your interest in our lab's research. Oh, yeah. gosh, yeah. And and actually, not only your research, but you. I mean, here in functional medicine, one of the underlying tenets of what we do is really that lifestyle approach to health and wellness. And what I find interesting about you is that you chose kinesiology and exercise as a specialty, the study of movement. So what drew you to that field, and, and how do you see that as exercise as medicine? Well, I guess my interest in this field started before I even knew what kinesiology was. Back when I was in high school and college, I was a swimmer, a water polo player, a lifeguard. So I was always pretty physically active and, you know, knew about training, exercise training, nutrition, but didn't really put everything together and took, until I took this human physiology course at a community college. Hmm. That made me think kind of about the, the structure, function, kind of anatomy and physiology connection. And then so I, I ended up going on to get my bachelor's degree, uh, as you said, at, at Cal Poly. And that really opened my eyes to a uh, program through the American College of Sports Medicine, which you also also mentioned, that's ACSM. And uh, it's called Exercises Medicine. It's been going on hmm. for like a decade now. And the whole point of Exercises Medicine Initiative is to make physical activity assessment standard in clinical care. Hmm. So, I mean, you know how, how medicine, how the field of medicine works. It's always... You go in, you're sick, what's wrong? Let's diagnose the problem and let's find a drug to fix that. Right. But what we really want to do is encourage physicians and clinicians to include physical activity in their, their design for treatment plan. Hmm. So this sounds like a huge, you know, huge initiative and idea. And I think it's been kind of, you know, making strides the last few years. And I've, I've you know, like I said, I've been involved in this for 10 years. The last five years or so, I've been a faculty member at SF State. My work's pretty interdisciplinary. And we really focus on looking at studying people with chronic diseases and disabilities to average healthy college age people and all the way really to elite athletes. Mm -hmm. uh, so the whole idea of, like you said, functional medicine and kinesiology, we try to look at this big you know, global approach. But really, the goal is to get people to start prescribing you know, exercise as medicine. Yeah. 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 That's, absolutely. that's, that's our jam. That's what we do here in functional medicine. So I love that. Yeah. And you know, within yeah. your particular area of expertise, there's actually a sub a subsegment of study called integrative physiology. How is that a little bit different from an approach standpoint as compared to conventional physiology, perhaps? Well, when we look at how the human body works, our lab, you know, like, like you said, takes an integrative, you know, quote unquote, integrative approach. And this is kind of a hot topic or buzzword. But what we really think of is looking at how your body functions from the molecular and cellular level all the way up to whole body performance and function. We try to look at how all the organ systems interact. And you can imagine, you know, most, most scientists and researchers focus on one particular gene or one particular function in a cell. Mm -hmm. We try to take all that knowledge, right, and then extrapolate it to the whole body. And, you know, we've known for a long time that there's measures like blood pressure and blood glucose and these vital signs that are super important for health and fitness. But what about, like you said, some of these functional measures? What about, what if we could do something like an, an NFL combine test, you know, for health and fitness and average people? 
Mm-hmm. So like, I guess three years ago, I started teaching a class called exercise testing and prescription, which is exactly what it sounds like. We, you know, test people's fitness and then prescribe exercise. And we look at certain functional measures like a person's ability to, you know, walk on a treadmill or run on a treadmill for as long as possible or look at muscle strength. And kind of a really cool, I guess, data point that I've found over the last few years is that things like muscular strength mm-hmm. is a strong predictor or one of the strongest predictors of all cause mortality. So meaning oh. the stronger you are, the less chance you have of dying of all, all causes. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, yeah, there's been so many studies, but a recent study came out in 2018, I believe by Garcia and colleagues. And they looked at 38 studies. It's a meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they found 38 studies looked at 2 million participants and found that, Things like knee extension, for example. So, you know, you're sitting on a knee extension machine. Mm-hmm. If you're strong at that movement, you have a 14% lower risk of dying in 10 years versus those with a, wow. a lower muscular strength. What? Wow. Wow. Uh, That's yeah. amazing. I mean, so you think of smoking, alcohol, diet, these environmental factors are super important. But what about just things like strength and fitness? Wow. Right. Right. And I guess that really, that hits home quite a bit and makes me think about how challenging it can be, especially from docs who are used to doing conventional primary care to kind of who are merging over to more of this functional medicine and understanding the role of diet and and movement even more, but maybe aren't as familiar with prescribing. And you mentioned talking about how to prescribe exercise. Is there any like tips that you would offer from that standpoint to to maybe some newer docs who aren't used to prescribing exercise as medicine? Yeah, I I know. With my limited experience with medical school, so I guess background too, when I was in my PhD, I was fortunate enough to take one medical physiology class at IU hmm. for med students. Hmm. And their curriculum has little, if you know, barely anything on, on exercise. Yep. And so you can't expect the doctors to know how to prescribe exercise to people. So, you know, I think in the next 5, 10, 15 years, we'll start seeing doctors hopefully looking to, you know, the field of things like personal training or cardiac rehabilitation or pulmonary rehab and, and actually finding these experts that can prescribe based on, you know, the science. So it's not going to be, it's not like one doctor is going to be able to, to do everything, but if they can, if they know the resources, I think that's going to help out a lot. Yeah. yeah. Even just to put it on the radar. Right. So that's interesting. Yeah. But so mm-hmm. not only is movement important in functional medicine, here at Genova, the gut and the microbiome is kind of our thing. And we here in the medical affairs department became acutely aware of you after reading your work. You had a, a, a paper published on elite athletes in the gut microbiome, which was published just a few months ago through the Physiological Society. Can you tell us about that work and, and what got you interested in studying the microbiome? Well, this kind of started for me in, in, I guess, 2016. And so, like you said, all, you all at Genova are way ahead of the game. You've been studying this for decades, right. the gut microbiome specifically. I was aware of the gut microbiome, I guess, but I didn't think anything as far as exercise could affect it that much. You know, I always thought diet, of course, if you eat fiber or you increase the amount of carbs or proteins, that's probably going to affect your gut microbiome. It kind of sounds like common sense, but right. yeah. it wasn't until one of my grad students I guess this was fall 2016, my grad student, Ryan Dirk, who is a co-author on this paper, he ended up writing a paper in my class about how exercise might affect the gut microbiome. Hmm. That got us into reading about, I don't know if you're familiar with the NIH Human Microbiome Project. Yep, yep, yep. But so yeah, so they had just started reporting data around that time, I guess, five years ago or so. Uh So we started looking into that. 
we teamed up with a colleague down at Georgia Southern University, Dr. Greg Grosicki, who had done some work on this at Tufts during his postdoc. And we decided to look at the difference between gut microbiome compositions in fit versus unfit people. Mm-hmm. And we found, you know, we didn't really know what to expect, but the people with a higher aerobic fitness actually had different F to B ratio. So that's oh. more of a global measure of bacteria, right? At the yep. phylum level. Right. Yep. But we didn't look at the specific genus or species level. So I guess if listeners remember back to bio 101, you've got, you know, your kingdom and then your phylum and then all the way down to the bottom, you've got genus and species. Mm-hmm. Now the technology is so relatively inexpensive that we can look at the genus and species level in bacteria. And there's, you know, billions of bacteria, trillions probably in your gut. So last summer we had the opportunity to look at a world-class ultramarathon runner before and after a 100-mile race. So I don't know if you all are familiar with the uh, Western States Endurance Run. We've heard that of it. Is, yeah. yeah, it's 100 miles from Lake Tahoe, California, all the way down to Auburn, which is super mountainous. It goes up over 11,000 feet down to, you know, not quite sea level, but relatively close. Wow. And we followed this individual for 21 weeks before the race and then during the race and after the race and found some of the most rapid and pronounced gut bacteria changes ever reported after exercise. Wow. Hmm. Especially, yeah, especially down at the genus level, like I mentioned. So, you know, we say things, quote unquote, good bacteria, bad bacteria. Right. I don't know that anybody really knows exactly what that means. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. You know, for example, yeah, <laughs> a 14,000% increase in Vianella, which wow. ferments lactate in, yes. in the gut. Yes. Wow. For, if you see 14,000% increase in anything in physiology, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we also found an increase in streptococcus, right, which is maybe considered a bad bacteria. It can cause disease. And that increased 400% after the race. Hmm. But within 10 days of recovery from this race, most of these changes went back to baseline. So hmm. I guess kind of what we found is the gut bacteria in athletes can change really fast. And it can also change back to, you know, get baseline or quote unquote normal levels, too. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, just how adaptive and, and fluidly right. adaptive, you know, some of these particular organisms are just based on, you know, a, a couple a couple of weeks, essentially. That's right. amazing. And we, I mean, here at Genova, we synthesize our microbiome data and we can compare a patient, you know, healthy versus unhealthy based on dysbiosis patterns. But to follow one person's microbiome before and after and then late after that exercise to see that much shift is so interesting, specifically violinella. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense too. But, you know, like Dr. Bagley was saying, it's essentially, it it utilizes lactate. Right. Right. So you're going to expect there's a ton of lactate production in this, this type of an individual during that time. So that's, that's really cool. That is cool. So. Yeah. I mean, we were planning, I guess quickly, we were planning on going back this summer to do this again, but it's not working out for us. Uh, so hopefully next summer we'll be able to do some more follow-up on some of these athletes. Yeah. yeah. That's great. <clears throat> yeah. And I, just a starting point too, because, you know, I know that there's a lot of animal models for this type of a change and looking at, you know, physically fit versus unhealthy mm-hmm. animal models and their microbiome changes and things like that. So the more we can get these types of human studies would be excellent. Right. I love that. I love that. Yeah, exactly. Another fascinating aspect of your work is your association with Virtual Reality Institute of Health and Exercise. Yeah, this I'm interested in this. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what you're studying there utilizing virtual reality? That that sounds like the, crazy. the future right. of research. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, we hope it's the future. I mean, so 
what I've been talking about so far is really physiology and how we think about the body and stuff. But another area of interest for me is how can we get people to become more physically active or physically mm-hmm. fit? Mm-hmm. Right. That's kind of like the question. And I'm, I'm by no means an expert in behavior change or psychology, but I do work with some exercise and sports psychologists. And I guess looking back, it was 2016, the beginning of 2017, I was a founding member of this group called the VR Health Institute. Mm-hmm. And the whole goal of this institute is to look at how VR experiences and VR games affect uh, the human body. And our lab was specifically interested in looking at metabolic costs during games. So we can actually hook somebody up to a metabolic cart and measure things like the calories that they'll use during during a VR experience. Uh-huh. So we, we published a paper in 2018. It was led by one of our grad students, Dulce Gomez. She's now a PhD student down at Auburn. And we found that VR gaming, we looked at three different game experiences, can increase your metabolic rate all the way up to moderate, vigorous intensity exercise, which you know was what? cool. And that was what we expected to see. Yeah. But the crazy thing we found was that the participants didn't feel like they were actually working that hard. Right. So, you know, for example, right, they're working at, let's say, 80% of their maximal oxygen uptake, they would report that they felt like they were working at 60 or 65%, for example. Hmm. And what, so, would, you know, that said, it, yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. no, I was just going to ask a question. What was their experience? Like what, what was, what were they seeing? What were they doing with the VR yeah. machine? What's happening system? there? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point that if you've never used a virtual reality headset, like an Oculus Rift or a HTC Vive, it's probably hard to explain, but you know, imagine you've got this headset on where you can look 360 degrees all directions you've got hand controllers to control your yourself in mm-hmm. the environment and you can move around too you you've got a space maybe two three meters mm-hmm. square you can move around in safely as long as you don't have anything you know in in that space you're fine <laughs> so what they were seeing in these three games was one of them was a boxing simulator one of them was an archery simulator and the other one was kind of a um i guess if you've ever played the the old uh, arcade game Dance Dance Revolution, yeah, something similar mm-hmm. to that, where it's a rhythm based game, okay, yeah. Um, so they're seeing this right in front of them and playing these games, and like I said, their heart rates up, you know, oxygen consumption's up to eighty percent of their max, but they don't feel like they're working that hard. So we think there might be some kind of disconnect or connection between what they're actually experiencing and and what they're feeling. So that's kind of led us into now we're trying to see how this might work in a gym setting or at home. I have a VR headset at home and I play it almost every day and I don't really consider it, think about it as exercise, but I know it is. So it's just another modality for exercise, I think. That's fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. That's crazy to me. And it just makes me wonder too about the particular (laughs) options. Like, you know, I wonder between those options, even you were talking about, it seems to me that maybe somebody would be burning more calories doing like the the rhythm-based dance type of a thing as compared to the the archery or like, you know, if they're just doing a VR hiking or something, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we're looking, we're working with biomechanists too, to look at which movements cause or the most increase in calorie consumption. And it's, you know, as you'd imagine, mostly lower body. If you're squatting, you do do 50 squats right now and tell me how you feel. You're going to be pretty exhausted. But if you do that in a VR game, you might not realize you're doing 50 squats. Right, right, right. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, okay, so we hit the microbiome. We talked about movement. We talked about virtual reality. Now what are you and your team working on? Where else are you going here? So you've hit a lot of stuff, and you can see my brain is so scattered, which, you know, I've got to keep everything organized. We have a lot going on. We're still working on some projects with the microbiome. Like you mentioned, we're working on VR stuff. But I was originally trained in skeletal muscle physiology. That's what my PhD was in. 
did some work with NASA, some work with the NIH. And right now we're actually finishing up a paper with Dr. John Myers, who's at Stanford and the VA at Palo Alto, and Dr. Andy Galpin, who's down at Cal State Fullerton, where I'm also affiliated uh, as a researcher. Right. And we're looking at mu- muscle fiber type changes in end-stage renal disease patients, so people on, on dialysis. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, kind of getting into that, we've, we've looked at a handful of patients, their baseline muscle fiber type, which if people remember from any, any biology class they've taken or anything, we have fast twitch and slow twitch fiber types. Mm-hmm. And these are based on a protein called myosin heavy chain. So you've got multiple isoforms of this in your skeletal muscle. And we're finding that these patients, you know, a lot of these patients have diabetes and hypertension. Some of them have been on, on dialysis for almost 10 years, which is a long time. Yeah. They're all pretty sedentary. And we're finding that they have very few of these slow twitch fibers, which might seem counterintuitive since, you know, they're moving slow, right? But the slow twitch fibers are actually super metabolically active. So our, our kind of ultimate goal is to look and see how exercise training might affect the fiber type, which is a, a qualitative measure of muscle quality, I guess, and then also muscle fiber size over time. And this is kind of hopefully going to help develop exercise prescription for people on dialysis. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of similar to what Dr. Myers, our collaborator, worked on in the 80s and 90s. He was really instrumental in creating the field of cardiac rehab, so cardiac patients exercising. And now we're kind of looking at renal patients and seeing how exercise can affect the the muscles. Interesting. I mean, when you think about I'm I'm trying to think kind of from a functional medicine and a primary care perspective, but when it when you're thinking about whether it's slow twitch fiber or fast twitch fiber, you know before you were saying that overall muscle strength and things like grip strength are are equated to long term longevity. Is there a difference between would you rather have more fast twitch or would you rather have more slow twitch or is it more complicated than that? You know, like anything in science, it's more complicated. (laughs) But I think what we can say for sure is that you don't want these hybrid type fibers. So I guess what I mean by hybrid is, let's say you have a lot of slow twitch, which would be myosin heavy chain type one. You have a lot of fast twitch, which would be myosin heavy chain type 2A. You don't really want a lot of one slash 2As or these these fibers that may not be activated a lot. And they're kind of in the middle trying to figure out what they want to be. You you don't necessarily want that. We've, We've done a lot of studies in elite athletes. Elite endurance athletes, as you'd imagine, 70, 80% slow twitch. Uh, elite strength athletes, we worked with Dr. Galpin on looking at elite weightlifters, mm-hmm. and they've got 70, 80% type 2A, or these fast twitch fibers, but all the elite athletes have very few hybrids. Hmm. So, you know, what we want to see is, you know, it doesn't matter if you want to go fast or slow, as long as you don't have a lot of hybrids, I think. You know, most people are around 50, 50 with some hybrids, but it really depends on what you're born with and then what you're doing for physical activity. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Is it something in your training too or lack thereof that might lead to more production of the hybrid type fibers? I'm getting, I know I'm kind of geeking out on this, but it's know, really Michael's, interesting Michael's to me. obsessed with these fibers. He thinks it's cool. So what are you saying? Like what, Yeah, absolutely. Like what, what causes the hybrid, um, Michael? Gonna, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like what is that a particular like shifting in what you're doing from a training perspective? Is it like confusing the muscle fiber types, I guess is what I'm wondering. Yeah, I think it's a detraining effect that causes probably those hybrid fibers. So you imagine, you know, every muscle fiber has got a motor neuron that attaches to it. And these motor neurons are either fast or slow neurons. Imagine that you're not using, for example, maybe these fast twitch fibers. The motor neurons aren't firing on that. They're not giving them a top-down signal. So the muscle fibers start to not know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so the protein, the protein building mechanisms start building both fast and twitch and 
slow twitch type proteins in there. And it's not until you start reactivating it with some type of physical activity that it starts saying like, oh, maybe I should become a fast twitch fiber because this, these slow proteins aren't really doing much for me or, or vice versa. Got it. So, so yeah, uh... it's, it's very complicated. And you know, I've been working on this for about a decade and I feel like I'm still confused with it. So if you're <laughs> confused, don't worry about it. <laughs> excellent, excellent. The other question I had too, going back to what we we're talking about is sort of muscle strength as being almost like an independent indicator of longevity. Do you do you feel like that's a little bit of a surrogate? Meaning, the the more you're able to do leg ex, leg ex, extensions, or the greater your capacity with leg extensions, is that a sign that you're less likely to fall? Or do you think it's it's bigger than that? Do you think it's more so that it's an overall sort of fitness indicator? I think you're right on with both of those, and it probably depends on the person. So you imagine if you're if you're stronger and more fit, you're going to be more resilient to dealing with injuries or diseases, right? So if you're 80 years old and you're relatively strong, you fall and break your hip, you're going to be able to recover more than somebody that's not fit. But I think it is more complicated than that. You know, even just looking at things like it's it's crazy if you just look at grip strength, for example, how how strong you can grip something. Mm-hmm. That's even related to all-cause mortality and morbidity, especially as you age. So it's, I think it's more related to, you know, not just falling, but also how your muscles and neurons and bones and ligaments and tendons and everything are working together. Yeah, it's it's complicated, but this is the fun stuff. This is what we like to study. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting to us, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, it's funny because I hear that about grip strength, and they're right. like, well, I'll just go out and get some things to exercise my hands. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I think that's a little reductionistic. It's probably not. That's, it's not more the grip. There's more to it there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just start opening yeah, a bunch yeah. of pickle jars, right? <laughs> you just want to be good at the test. And you're like, look, yeah. I'm going to live forever. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think, yeah, what, what we should be doing is making sure we are utilize, utilizing exercise as medicine as much as possible, Agreed. which I guess, you know, I know you're a PhD and researcher, but come, like trying to put on a little bit of a clinical hat just for a second. What do you feel like for for people and individuals who maybe have a hard time, don't don't find exercise to be fun and really, really struggle. What what are some things that they can just do that would maximize their their first steps into exercise as medicine? Like you mentioned how you know squats are gonna have a certain effect. Is there a particular type of exercise that you'd say start there? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I think there's good news here. The good news is that exercise has a dose response. So everything we've talked about is the more you do, the better the better the outcomes, right? But if you start with just walking for five minutes, three or four times a day, mm-hmm. that's going to be way better than doing nothing. You know, you don't, you don't have to, like, I always say, you don't have to just say, I'm going to go from couch potato to marathon runner this year. That's probably not healthy or safe, but you could go from couch potato to three, three walks a day for 10 minutes or so. And the American College of Sports Medicine, the CDC, American Heart Association came out with some position stands in the last couple of years that said that even if you exercise for a minute, that can accumulate to, you know, your total amount of exercise in a day. So they recommend 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a day. So that could be vigorous walking, jogging, climbing stairs, but you don't have to do 30 minutes all at once. Mm -hmm. So I'd say for people just starting... Schedule this in your day. Say, as soon as I wake up, you know, have breakfast, I'm going to go for a 10-minute walk. And then I'm going to, at lunchtime, again, do another 10-minute walk. And then at night, after dinner, do a 10-minute walk. If you went from nothing to that, your health outcomes are going to be dramatically different. 
you know, and I think that brings it back to, you know, patients when they hear, oh, I have to exercise, they're very put off by that. But I think if we bring it back to, in fact, what Dr. Bagley talked about initially was kinesiology, the study of movement, and just to like promote movement and not that word exercise, I think is the key there. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think just, you know, sometimes I don't want to go exercise either. Right. It's not like I'm like this, this person that's like, oh yeah, I study exercise and I, that's all I do. It's, you know, if I don't feel like it, maybe you can take a day off and that's not going to be the end of the world either. You right. know, just again, right. go for a walk or, or keep moving. Right. But yeah, I think that in the future or now it's starting to happen that we really do need to look at physical fitness movement as a real vital sign when we're looking at health outcomes. Perfect. Yeah, that's awesome. I do have one additional question. I hope you don't mind me (laughs) prying into your personal life, but it's, um, the question goes a little something like this. Do you like sandwiches? And if you do, do you have a favorite sandwich? Yes. I like, I I like all food. So that could be a problem too. If you put any sandwich (laughs) in front of me free lunch, I'll eat it. But I think to go back to when I was a kid, my mom used to make me sub sandwiches with salami, provolone, mustard, and pepperoni. I think that's, that's my go-to sandwich right there. A classic. That is a classic. And way to go mom to put together a pretty fantastic sounding sandwich. Come on. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have the pepperoni. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, Dr. Bagley, this was intriguing. You do so much great work, and we're just so thankful for researchers like you that that really put all this stuff together. And like I said, Genova here, we, we, do, we do gut testing and microbiome testing. So we were super interested in what you're doing, and we're going to continue to follow all the great stuff that you're doing there at San Francisco State. So I encourage everyone to look into some of this stuff and check out that Virtual Reality Institute. Studies, that's really interesting to me, yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Dr. Bagley. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Take care. That was really fun. That was a good time. He's got a lot of really cool interests. Yeah, I agree. I think we have some overlapping interests. What do you mean? Well, I just... the. Muscle fiber type seems to be something that I'm acutely interested in. Why? What I do you think mean? It's, well, you know, coming from someone who's like, do I have any muscle fiber types? <laughs> so I'd like, like to know which of the <laughs> ones I have are hybrid and not hybrid because apparently that's a bad thing. But no, I think it's really interesting when it comes from he's when he's talking about the fiber type differentiation yeah. and how it's sort of like what wires together, fires together, and how that relates to the skeletal muscle tissue as well. I think that's I, that's really cool. Yeah, and even as it relates to the microbiome and then, you know, to your brain with virtual reality, he's just on the cutting edge of so many interesting little aspects of what we call functional medicine. Yeah, great conversation, and cool we guy. should have him back on sometime oh, yeah. and talk some more. I got a list of questions. With that being said, should we do a bit of a disclaimer? Yep. Let's have Oliver do his Manchester disclaimer. Yeah. The contents at Lab Reports are meant for educational purposes only and not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Thanks, Oliver. Thank you. Apologies to anyone who happens to be from Manchester. Yeah. Next time on the Lab Report, we're going to have on... Who? Mark Sisson. What? Yeah. Primal Blueprint. Wow. He's going to tell us about the blueprint. Wow. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 
888-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. You like pepperoncinis? I love pepperoncinis. Pepperoncini versus a banana pepper. Ouch. It's tight. It's close. Is the pepperoncini the bourgeois banana pepper? I mean, the banana pepper is the people's pepper. The people have a pepper? Yeah, it's, oh. it's the banana pepper. It's the people's pepper.